Hello and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. And I'm Sebastian. And on this season, we're reading The Ethical Slut, third edition, by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. I'll come out when I'm ready. Don't lock the door. Take me in. Hi, Sebastian. Where are you? Still on my couch, Claire. Where are you? Still on your couch. <laughs> I yeah. noticed that we do like a lot more recording while we're physically together, and I think that's just because it's so much easier to find time when we're in the same time zone. Yeah, it's it's much easier when there isn't a six-hour time difference to factor into. So, in this week's episode, we're reading *The Unethical Slut*, which is chapter eleven of the book. Um, some background on this chapter: in the very first edition, this was part and parcel of the chapter on slut skills. It was in the second edition. It was taken out, made into its own section of the book, its own chapter, and it was called The Unethical Slut, A Rant, and it was an interlude okay. for the book. It was, Which, actually, if you look at the book, we are smack bang in the middle of it now, yeah. I think, more or less. Um, but in this edition, in the third edition, this forms its own fairly short chapter, where they and they dive straight in, and they get it done very quickly, and then we kind of go back to uh, slightly longer chapters with subheadings. So it's, it's a bit different, a bit of a different read. Probably going to be a little bit more of a, a different experience for us to read it together. What did you think of the chapter generally? I like this chapter more than the last one. Um, I thought it, I'm glad that it's its own chapter. I think if we're going to talk about ethical slavery and what that looks like, we really need to shout out and be clear about what, what we mean by ethical sluthood and then what is not ethical sluthood and what is not, you know, living an honest and open lifestyle. So shouting that out and they give some examples and there's probably some other ones we may come up with along the way um, and sort of broader definitions of what that really means. And yeah, I think one of one of the big things about this chapter that became was me, immediately obvious to me was that this seems to be written like a catalogue of experiences. It's almost like... Um, they're speaking very much from their own personal experience and less of like a manual of how to do something or less based on any kind of formalized research. This is, this reminds me a lot of like a lot of poly blogs now where they're like, this is a, a type of experience that you might have and this is my experience of it and this is how I approached it. And that's like quite a large amount of the body of literature that's available for kind of like non-academic polyamory. Um, so this... This chapter does exactly that. Yeah, it does. It's really specific. I think there are some sort of broad undercurrents to all the examples that they give, which we can pull out as we go, but it's definitely some very specific examples of... We'll, we'll be of, pulling them out. Pull them right out. Yeah. But first of all, we should go through... What they have. What they have, yeah. So when I read this, um, I've pulled out, I think, six unethical sluts that mm -hmm. they're talking about. Kind of like, if these are actual people... And you'd be like, this is number one's problem, this is number two's problem, number three's problem, etc. And the first one is, um, when you use when you're using sex and you're and you're being slutty to try and build up a sense of self worth. So basically, there's there's um, you know you're doing you're doing some work on yourself. You're finding like there's a lack of um, of sort of self esteem almost, and so you use sex. The unethical slut one uses sex to try and fill that void um, of like their, their self-esteem. Um, 
And obviously the issue with that is, uh, apart from the fact that it's like not a particularly nice experience for, for the individual, but it's also, it's, it's a never ending cycle. You're never gonna have enough sex to fill up your poor self-esteem. Like if, if that is something that you're struggling with and, um, and you, you're requiring validation from people and one of the ways to get that is through uh, romantic or sexual intimacy, it's, it's outside of you. You're just, you're just enfranchising yourself from fulfilling something that, that you can. If you do the work to sort of like um, build up a solid sense of self-worth, then you don't need to then be relying on an external source for that. And actually it could be, it could be many things that you would use to, to fill that void. It could be, obviously they're talking about sex here, but it could also be things like work, money, power, stuff. Um, I do think personally, although I don't know, <laughs> I'm not a psychologist, but there seems to be a very similar kind of drive between a lot of hoarders. You know, you, you feel like you're lacking stuff, so you, something inside you, so you just like accumulate a bunch of stuff. And this is, this is the first unethical slut that they, that I, I think that they're talking about here, even though it's not signposted as such. Yeah, so the next thing that they talk about in here is set collectors, um, and they say this may be new to you, but I've actually seen this and heard about people who think like this before. Set collectors. Set collectors. What, what is what is that? I don't, I hadn't heard about that before this. So the example that they give here is um, somebody who whose lover had been trying to sleep with all of like family members, so her her mother and her sister, and the reason that she was being pursued was so that this person could collect the set. That's of her super family. gross. Yeah. That's a really creepy way it's of thinking very, about people. Yeah. And I've seen it like talked about in movies. Um, I know when I was in school, people would do that with like sororities. So we were like, I want to collect the set of all the sororities, for example. So these are people who are, it's, it's a little bit similar to what we were talking about before in terms of trying to fill something up or achieve something through sex that's, you know, a little bit dishonest and taking something away from people. But in this case, you're, you're pursuing specific people for some internal game that you're playing so it has really nothing to do with them and that's also very unethical because you're not being honest with them and and you're probably being manipulative to achieve that also the idea of like collecting a set denotes that maybe everyone in that set knows each other right is that is that the case yeah and from this it would sound like the example they gave like it was being done sneakily so that they didn't know that okay right there's, there's there's like some reason to try to accomplish that um and then going along with that, the next one they talk about is about scoring. Well, it's not the next one. I think it's the same unethical slot, right? It's a similar. I, I think it's a little bit different because in this case, the scoring is more about you're trying to get as many relationships or sexual involvements as possible. And then you're also scoring them and ranking people and like trying to get the highest score, whether that's um, by sleeping with somebody who's you might, you know, you rank somehow. You make some arbitrary ranking system of people, and you're trying to get as high a rank oh, as like possible. Oh, like people say, like, oh, she's a ten. Right. Like whether. Or that... like, um, oh, my body counts like in the three digits. Right. Whether and that's it's like that's a strange brag. Right. Whether it's because of yeah, like a certain type of attractiveness or a certain financial status or because of just the number, and then also, you know, ranking. You know, it talks about, um, you know, ranking the people in there based on things like you know, thinness. Uh, age, how cute they are, how mm. fit they are, how so wealthy are their social way, status. It becomes a way of like reinforcing 
sort of like a heteronormative patriarchal um, version of value where like you only like you have you only have value if you're like thin and pretty and white right um, and everything that you every step away from that you get I can kind of give you less respect because you won't you won't be valued as highly in my collection of things that I right. that I have my collection of friends or my collection of lovers or my collection of like fucks or whatever right and then that turns into then there's even the, the added unethical quality of that if, if this is something that's like being shared so then it makes me think of sort of the typical stereotypical you know businessmen in, in movies where they're like <laughs> bragging about their sexual exploits and like everybody's like comparing notes and like like a wolf of Wall Street. Right, like, kind of like that. unethical slattery. Right, and so there's that whole dilemma of sort so of the, ranking people, and that's just not good. So this unethical slut, um, the, this to me is like, that. obviously, yes, it's fine to be like, oh, you know, these evil, like, 80s-style villains who would be like, you know, I have, uh, yeah, like, I totally, like, did this, and then, like, two two days later did his sister as well and everyone was like hey but I actually think that like even within the polyamorous community stuff like this still happens yeah yeah like I was reading a blog uh, obviously I, I'm not really in the scene here in the states but um, there are a lot of like professional polyamorous people who blog um, and it gets kind of mentioned it's like a strain in within the conversation there of like people who might like hone in on the fresh meat um, and you know, like, basically uh, get get there first, if you like. Mm. And also the other way around, where, like, people who are, like, minor celebrities within this the this little bubbly scene that, that seems to be in the States, they kind of, like, want to sleep with them. They're like, that's the trophy. I want to sleep with the person that's, like, known for being, like, this. And I would say that's, that is obviously unethical because in both of those people are treating the other like they are a an object. Tr- and I think that this is uh, going to be one of the two major themes of this of this chapter. When you treat somebody deliberately treating them as an object outside of any kink scene and kink play, what like what you're doing there is is fundamentally making it an unethical exchange. Even if that person doesn't even realize it, um, or even if the person never realizes it, it's still like a fundamentally unethical basis for any kind of relationship, sexual or otherwise. And off the back of that, I then started thinking about one other example, not mentioned here, but similar, I think, which is unicorn hunters. Hmm. The people that are in a couple that want to find like a third, like the ideal third, the hot bi babe quality. And I don't want to go so far as to be like that's because um, I think often it's not even like deliberate. But because of like many contributing factors, sometimes unicorns in a triad it's not even a triad, is it? It's a couple with a with an add-on. They get treated more as like a living flesh doll for sex. They have to be like, oh, emotionally available pretty much all the time. Like, they need to be sexually available pretty much all the time. And they need to be like super crazy hot, like scored. Like they say in this chapter, scored pretty highly. Um, and then unfortunately, like, but they're not really being seen as a full like a full-fledged person and I think this is something that we will come back to the specific dynamic because there are chapters on opening up your relationship and and having a third and stuff like that but I think it was interesting when, when you're talking about scoring people and when you're talking about that basically what you're doing is you're disenfranchising that person of an actual full uh 
humanness. And that's, that is essentially, like, that still happens in the community and, and it, there are even situations in polyamory where that might make it more likely. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. So they say, we do not believe that love is a game that you can win by scoring high on a hierarchy of shallow values. We know from extensive experience that appearance and wealth are not predictors for good loving, which I think is a really good reminder for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Who is the third unethical slut? So the third unethical is the uh, non-consensual non-monogamist. Or what we commonly refer to as cheaters. Yeah. And they say here that some people may may be very well suited to non-monogamy, but they get sort of attached to the adrenaline or the secrecy or the concealment and sort of those aspects, a little sort of almost like clandestine nature of like cheating and like breaking the rules of monogamy. Um, and they they may actually not want to be more ethical and open about it and wanting to be non-monogamous because they enjoy this aspect of sneaking around um, yeah, and I always think that they don't really make this distinction in here, but it is important to say that even in a consensually non-monogamous uh, relationship, there are ways to cheat. Yeah. Right. And you can be non-consensually non-monogamous in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. Yes. Right. Was... So primary example, I guess, I feel like um, you have you have like a clear agreement or like a clear rule in your relationship that like you need to tell the other person about like all partners and you need to tell all partners about everyone right like I would be very upset if I was dating someone who wasn't willing to be open about me like if I was being hidden even though I don't really mind obviously (laughs) my partners having other partners I have a problem with them having partners who don't know about me I think that's just like very at its heart dishonest so if you were to have a relationship with someone who you decided not to tell about me, that would be an example of being non-consensually non-monogamous, even though it's not the non-monogamy that's the issue, it's, it's another boundary. Yeah. So just to make that clarification. Yeah. I agree with that, and I had, I had written on the side there, um, in, in the consensually non-monogamous context, like breaking of agreements, is now being non-consensually non-monogamous. Whatever those agreements are that you've agreed on, um, if you're breaking those, then you're no longer being ethical about it. Um, and those can be different for different people, and those have to be negotiated or agreed upon, but it still definitely exists. Mm. I will say before we leave this this unethical slot, though, that there's a quite nice bit in the chapter where it's... I'll just read directly from the book. It takes a pretty substantial leap of faith and maybe some creative fantasizing and role-playing for such individuals to open up their hidden places and experience the greater joy that can come from knowing that nobody is getting hurt from their fun. So the lead there is, if you're finding like you're okay having multiple relationships, but you, you don't really want, like you, you're addicted to the to the sneaking around, the, the, the cheating element of it, um, and you end up with someone who's like, well, I'm fine with it, then that's a really great opportunity to, to like, there are tools available to make the step into consensual non-monogamy to try and, like, protect yourself and all parties involved um, and to experience a different type of joy. Uh, and I think one of the examples for this would be, like, there is a role play where you would pretend that you don't know each other and you're just meeting in a bar for the first time. Or there is a role play where when you're having a third person there with their consent, there is a level of like voyeurism, voyeuristic sexual activities are obviously with consent of all um, 
of all involved, but but create uh, like a play scene that can mimic some of the the triggers for like that that adrenaline that someone might be really addicted to. And I like that they've put that in here. I think that that's that's a, it's it's not like these unethical sluts generally necessarily need to be like like can, can never be saved. Right. Um, there are there are ways to slide the the activities into into a more ethical place. Right. And I would also I just wanted to add one other thing that I thought about with that is that. You know, they talk about how it can be very hard or scary for them to make that jump from being thinking about it because that's what culture tells them. And having a book like this and other resources and to realize you can have multiple partners and you can do that ethically instead of unethically. Like for some people, maybe they just need that realization. And then they can they, they may not even realize that that's a possibility until they start talking about it. Um, and if once you do, you can be like, oh, right, I can do both of these things without having to sneak around on people. So I think that's another... You know, with with new resources out there and this being more open and visible, that may also help people shift out of that space. Uh, at least we can hope. Um, but for now, let's move on. Would you like to talk about the next one that they highlighted? Oh, you can take it. Okay. So the, the next part that they talk about is about people who refuse to use barriers um, or who don't want to follow rules about the use of protection during sex. Um, unethical. Very unethical. Super, and also kind of gross. Yeah. And unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. Or who don't want to talk about it, or who don't want to, what they say, refusing to deal with the realities of viruses and bacteria. Uh, Just because of embarrassment. Because, because of embarrassment, because you don't want to. Yeah, that, you, that's not a good reason. Like, yeah. it, to be ethical about, to be ethical about, any relationship where you get close enough to be exchanging any fluids, you would hope that you would be able to have a conversation about it, even if that's an uncomfortable conversation to be having. But I don't want to get into that way loads because we do have an episode coming up all about keeping sex safe. We have a whole chapter, but But, I think my philosophy is if if you can't have an honest conversation with somebody about the use of protection and your sexual health, you shouldn't be having sex with them. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that that conversation is going to be, like, a super happy, fun time. Like, I've definitely had to, um, like, sit down with partners who are unpracticed at having that discussion for a variety of reasons. It hasn't been fun, but it has been the ethical thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And what's worse is if you've already had that discussion and you still like the, the 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 unethical slot they're talking about here someone i think also who has still maybe had that conversation but refuses to to stand by and i guess that's that's similar to breaking agreements that we've already spoken about and basically just like don't fucking do that um there there are oh there there was another version of this unethical slot people who deliberately don't use barriers knowing they're infected which is not only unethical it's also like fucking illegal yeah. and if that's happened Check your national laws and get that person fucking in jail. It's disgusting. Like, unfortunately, there are crappy people out there. Um, oh, it makes me quite angry. Yeah. People, people who play around with sexual health, especially if you have multiple relationships and your sexual health impacts many people. Mm-hmm. That, like, that's I, a whole. I've been in, I've been in um, communities where where somebody was doing that, and it was yeah. like devastating for many people. Including the person that was fucking doing it. Like, obviously, if you're not, like, if you're the kind of, imagine there's the kind of person who knows that they have an infection and they are deliberately spreading it. That is also the kind of person who is not seeking the help and support available 
and probably not taking medication that can like allow them to live a long, healthy, productive life. And whether you're not having that discussion because of stigma, embarrassment, or because you're just an outright dick, like, no excuse, you need to have that discussion. Yeah. All right, ethical slut number five is people who make promises they can't keep. So um, if you're trying to someone and you're looking for a life partnership and then they say like, yeah, definitely, blah, 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 like we should totally do that. I'm, I'm on the same page as you, but like you, you essentially are being, you're essentially lying. Maybe to yourself as well. But basically making, making promises that you can't keep I think there's a level here of like del- like being deliberate about it. Like if you're deliberately making those those decisions you can't keep. Obviously, life is unpredictable. I'm not saying that everyone who makes a promise and then breaks it is unethical, uh like at their core. But someone who's deliberately kind of using that those promises as a way to manipulate somebody into a relationship or into a sexual relationship, um that's like you're you're disenfranchising the person from saying, "Oh, no, thank you." Um, and that's, that's a very unethical thing to be, to be basing anything on. They also say, obviously, that mistakes are made and that we, we should be learning from them. Sometimes we can't predict it, people get hurt, but I think that they make a very, very good job. They do a very good job here of differentiating between the people who accidentally break promises, um, you know, realizing, oh, actually I didn't, I don't want to get married after all. Uh, and people who have strung someone along almost like to to get something with with promises that they kind of made not really not really in good faith yeah i agree i don't have anything to add on that okay um but that's a very good distinction and and what they go into after that is is the fact that people do make mistakes you may make a promise that you had every intention of keeping or have some agreement that you you wanted to hold to and mistakes happen and or something happens um and through that, a couple of things can happen. You can discover new limits. Um, you know, you can discover different ways that you want to do things as a result of, of learning from your mistakes or somebody else's mistakes and, and realizing um, something that you find unethical or something that you want to do differently. And you have to learn from those and keep going. So Dossie has an example from when she was much younger and she had been broken up with by someone. And ended up going to a coffee shop and running into someone who had been interested in her for a long time. And she had no serious feelings for that person, um, but ended up taking that person home to sort of placate her hurt feelings after the breakup. Um, ended up getting back together with the person and realized later on that she had just been using this other person to soothe herself without any intention of sort of reciprocating the affection that they had for her and felt very bad about it. Uh, and she felt, in, in hindsight, that that was, bit, was thoughtless and unethical. And she would have been much more ethical to just say no to that person's advances instead of using him for her own personal placation or, or soothing. So that example sort of leads them into revenge fucking, which is kind of what the example was about. Um, but they, they point that out as another, as a very specific way that people will use sex and intimacy to manipulate people. Um, and in this case, using sex with one person to get back at another person, which is unethical to both the person you're having sex with and to the person you're trying to get back at. Um, because you're, you're one, you're basically just using somebody, which is unethical. And you're also, 
if this is somebody you had a partnership with before and you're trying to revenge, get revenge on them by having sex with someone else, you're probably doing that to, um, you know, inspire insecurities or jealousy or painful feelings purely to hurt. And so you're taking advantage of your intimate knowledge of that person. Mm. And I will say that they then, right. So it's very important that like that might've resonated with people. It definitely resonated with me. And the next thing they say is that there's absolutely no shame in being on the receiving end of that. So I want to like share something actually has happened to me because I'm not ashamed of it. I, I feel absolutely, I don't feel like it makes me an idiot or anything. I literally once was having sex with somebody who I had finished having like a formal sexual relationship with, but you know, we bumped into each other. We were like having a really nice time. We, we went and literally during, during the act, he said to me, just so you know, we're never going to do this again. Like during. And I was like, okay. <laughs> it took the sting right out of it. He obviously was like, oh, was really really put out like he obviously wanted that me to be like wait what like what did you say and I was like okay fine then like that's not why I was doing this um kind of killed the mood I guess you should leave but he obviously was trying to do it to kind of like spark some of those feelings in me and it just doesn't like once you take that the shame away from that like you could start having a discussion like then I told my friends and like oh my god I'm like that's really shitty and I was like yeah of him it's not shitty me. Like, I mean, it's not my problem. <laughs> it's like, an, yeah. it seems like an odd use of your time to like do that to somebody. Um, so for anyone that's like listening and like that concept of like using sex to manipulate you, revenge fucking rings t- through to you and you're like, oh, it feels really, I feel embarrassed. No, sis, no. no. Like, do not be embarrassed about someone else's completely immature use of like what should be fun, um, intimate, engaging, like sexual intimacy or, or non-sexual intimacy, like really anything, like there's no shame in believing someone else has deliberately told lies. Agreed. And I think that brings us to the end of this where they wrap it up, which is all of these have to do with somebody being dishonest or are trying to have sex while avoiding any intimacy or emotional connection. I think all of these have to do with either being dishonest or I will make I'll make a change to what they say here. I think mm. it's about being dishonest or treating someone as an object. Those are all the examples they've given thus far, I think. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to the end of the chapter. It does. It was a short chapter. Super short. Do you um do you have any other unethical slots to add to this mix? Mm, no. Because I I had a couple. Extra on the, the only one that I could add, which may have some overlaps, but I, I think is people who are polyamorous or in open relationships who don't share that with people who are disingenuous about that, which is kind of similar to breaking agreements. But I, I think that's a very specific way of being unethical. If you are, I think that's not, I think I don't know. I'm not sure that I agree with you there, and this is why because. I think that that would, first of all, be very similar to making promises you can't keep, right? But, I mean, obviously it's like kind of wasting everyone's time. And I'm not saying it's like um, like a morally good thing to do. But what I'm saying is like, you um, might, like you're, you're not, you don't have to come out. You don't have to put yourself at that risk. Right? And coming out as polyamorous and non-monogamous 
that's that's like coming out as um i don't know being gay let's say or being bisexual you don't own anyone that and it's kind of like some of the cultural narratives basically are like oh just going like beginning a relationship with someone and them assuming that it will be monogamous it's i don't know i understand why that cultural narrative is i understand the cultural narrative is there and that person is making the assumption about the promises that you're making and like the values you bring to the table but not taking the time to to ensure that you are explaining to the person that you're coming from a different place it's not ipso facto unethical like there are other things to think about when you decide to come out and that includes like safety concerns it might not be safe for you to tell someone that you don't really believe in monogamy and that you're you have another relationship like i i have had that experience because like i don't always date in like the happy fuzzy world of you know american white middle class like that's that's not my exclusive dating pool <laughs> like there have been times where i can't tell people um the intricacies of the way that i live my life or or things until until it's quite quite invested because it's just simply not safe for me to do that yeah i mean i think that's a that's a specific example and that that's fair and safety is a different part of it but i i guess my point is more clearly it's not a conversation that has to happen right away uh, and maybe not at all but i i do think there is a there is a part as you said there, there is a, a sort of general cultural script about what a lot of people expect and so maybe this does overlap a bit with um dishonesty or not keeping the promises that you make and if there are some implicit promises or you're hiding things or not being honest about about this stuff i think that's a sort of gray area for me i mean clearly there are reasons why you might not want to share that with someone and you might not want to share it at the start of a new relationship but i think if it's if it's presenting yourself wrong and you're not giving someone an honest presentation of your expectations then that's unethical Okay, so I also had two unethical sluts to add to this. And I should give them both names okay. to help delineate them. The first one is the slut shamer. Ooh, that's a good one. And the second one is the drama hunter. So the slut shamer might be kind of obvious, but the slut shamer is somebody who, despite being like on the outside, like I guess woke and sex positive and actually maybe even being polyamorous and being currently dating many people, might um, shame someone else for doing the same or similar actions or any slutty actions no matter who you are just like stop shaming people we've we spoke a lot about shame in i think it was episode five when we talk about battling sex negativity yes yeah. it was episode five nice and i think that often the slut shamer has latent or dormant culturally culturally given um moral codes that they haven't fully excised through their own personal work, but they're basically will then project them. And maybe this can go just like saying a throwaway comment, but it could go so far as to like fully trying to like tear down someone for, for their slutty behavior. And it's so, I think it's almost so much worse when it's coming from another slut. Cause I'm like, it's like when I see girls tearing, like tearing down other girls, I'm like, we, we have enough haters, <laughs> you know? Like I make it a point of like, I have great girlfriends around me and like, any one of them, if I would, if they ever slut shame somebody like out loud, I'd be like, wow, no. If they ever tried to pull down another girl like to make me feel better, they don't know me well enough. Like that's never something you're gonna hear in my circle of friends. So I have like a really high standard for that, and I think if you do that, it's like there's something wrong with you. You need to go away. You need to figure that out. Like don't bring it to my table. 
Well, and the slut shaming comes back to the cultural script that that sluttiness is bad, and so slut shaming sort of is completely antithetical to ethical sluthood because if you believe in ethical sluthood, then how can you shame someone for doing that as long as they're doing it ethically, and they're not being any of these other unethical things? Then why would you? Yeah, I mean, if you want to call someone out because they've done something you think you think is unethical, um, you know. And and you feel like that's your business, right? But that's really far from slut shaming as like a yeah, definitely. Know. Okay, the drama hunter. This is okay. This is how I think about the drama hunter. It's it's a bit more complex because there isn't uh, something I can like point to. Like that's the root of it. But I think basically the drama hunter is coming from the same place as you're trying to feel to shore up your your self esteem with sex. But instead of shoring up your self esteem with sex, you are you are instead trying to create like as much drama as possible. Like you feed off of that drama. Um, maybe you, maybe this, this is like, you deliberately date people that you know are not compatible for you. Like they're not good for you, but you still date them anyway. And if you're a listener and I just said that and you were like, oh, like that person that I'm dating, it's you. You're not being ethical to yourself or to the other person in the relationship or to the other people in the relationship. But it might, might also be like someone who, um, like within a community, like will want to, like set collect could be one of those as well but for not not for the sex but for the drama that they would get out of it and afterwards like yeah. not just because like not like hey i collected the whole set but i collected the set and hey set look at all this you all slept yeah. with me haha right. i got I th- you exactly i think that's like slightly different like kind of ethics at play there it's about basically interpersonal communication ethics yeah. and like you you're doing all of the slushery and like you are fine and happy to do that but the real high you get is off of the drama and I think that that is something that, like, it's, uh, it's not good for anyone involved. And I would classify that person as being unethical, mainly to themselves, but also to, like, a community or a family circle that they're involved with or whoever else they're dating. It's another example of people using sex to manipulate others. And then also, not just to manipulate others, but then to gain satisfaction by sort of hurting them. Like, you're, you're well, sort of emotional. I think, I think it's not necessarily about the sex that, that I'm thinking about, because sex does not necessarily generate drama. And it's about... Um, using relationships. Mm-hmm. Like you, you're investing time in someone you know is bad for you. You're like, why? Why? <laughs> why are you doing that? <laughs> or like you're, you're investing time in multiple relationships that you know are probably going to come to a head and like cause some kind of like dramatic ending or dramatic flurries. And I think that unethical slut needs to like, again, go away and think about why, why they need that. What are they... What? Ooh, you know what it is? It's like... They're trying to use the drama to make it so they don't have to think about something else. It's an mm. avoidance tactic. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, I have two other things on this chapter. I know it was a really short chapter, there was like a lot to go through. Do you have anything else you want to add? Any other unethical slurs? No, I'm good. Okay, because what I want to talk about really quickly is that obviously, um, like, I love Janet and Dossie, whose names I can now say. Obviously, they've added a lot of learning to the community here, but. I wondered as I was reading this, the way that online relationships versus in-person relationships work, because all the examples they give in this, in this chapter are about unethical activities you could do in person. And I think online, there are other unethical, slutty things to do. Can you think of any? Catfishing. Catfishing. Oh, I didn't even write that one down. Okay, explain that. So catfishing is the, the sort of practice that's developed with online dating of, of people going into online dating apps and 
leading you on either just for the the fun of that without any intention of pursuing any kind of relationship or interaction or to like learn about you and catch you out on something sometimes people use it as a sort of manipulation tactic to almost like get blackmail material maybe or get um you know like say you go on a dating app especially if it was maybe a sort of kink themed or a certain type of dating app and find out something about you that they could then use in your out life to to manipulate you so those are the two sometimes it's just people who get some satisfaction out of leading people on and it can also be a little bit more um what's the word insidious Mm, nice word uh, to really like to, to gain some sort of leverage on somebody by finding out something that they might not share yeah. publicly. And like we, well, I haven't, but you, you've dated couples and they, I think that this is something that, um, I mean, I've also listened to like the Normalizing Nominomy podcast where someone frequently has couples on there that can't be out. And if someone was to, to come at them like with, a, with a catfish and actually, like I'm, I'm just... Basically, I'm just saying, like, I think it is on the mind of people who are living open relationships in maybe, like, Bible Belt, Texas, for example. <laughs> or, like, um... Or, like, somebody who might be... might be really, bi. really thoughtful about. Ooh, or being bi. Yeah. Right, somebody who might be bi and is sort of... But is not out as bi. And they don't... For whatever reason, they don't feel comfortable, maybe, with people knowing that they date. So, like, for my example, if I didn't feel comfortable with people, with people at large knowing that I date men, mm-hmm. then... You know, if somebody, if somebody tried to catfish me on a dating app to, to find that out, and that's why people are sometimes hesitant to put, like, pictures of their face on there or pictures with mm-hmm. tattoos or, or obvious pictures that can be tracked back to social media because what, what happens, like, it's out there. Once it's out there, people can figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think catfishing is a really... There definitely are some unique unethical behaviors that come out of the um, well, I, I think it's an, it's an adaptation of what Dossie and Janet have put in here specifically about making promises you can't keep. That includes misrepresenting yourself on purpose. Um, but that's a really good one. There are other on, on, online unethical practices. Two others that I have. Guess them. <laughs> the other one that just occurs to me now is... It's one that we talked about, but in the online dating contest, it's like misrepresenting yourself online. So, like catfishing? no, in that case, I don't even mean catfishing, but like people, for example, who, <laughs> who provide, who don't provide honest information about themselves or honest pictures of themselves or. Okay. That's not what I had. So I'm going to go, I'm going to launch okay. into the ones I had. Cool. What did you have? Cause I'm. Ghosting. Ghosting. Yeah. Ghosting is a really unethical practice to do. I think about it as being kind of similar to like, similar to like having the conversation about barriers, right? It's just a little bit of embarrassment that you have to go through, which tells someone, like, I'm no longer interested in you. And so people just don't do it. And they just stop messaging. And it's shitty. Like, it's just shitty. I'm not saying it's, like, um, the, like it's obviously not up there with, like, deliberately not using barriers in person. But, like, in terms of online etiquette, for sluts, it's, it's time-wasting. It's rude. It's a shitty thing to do. And it's kind of, like, igniting a bunch of fears in the other person for no reason. You could just be like, hey... This is kind of an awkward text to send you, but I actually didn't enjoy our date as much as I thought I did. And in the cold light of day, I'm not really interested in pursuing this any longer. Or, hey, so my circumstances have changed and I don't want to continue to speak to you online. That yeah. is so easy to send. If you were ghosting someone right now, pick up your fucking phone and be like, hi, my circumstances have changed. I just want to just let you know that I no longer wish to speak with you. So can I ask you a clarifying question? Yeah. Because I, I definitely agree ghosting. Like if you've gone on a date... And then you ghost someone. I, I think that's very unethical. But what about the situation where 
because of, there's like it's so easy to chat with chat with so many people on a dating app. Do you think of it also as like say you chat a few messages back and forth with someone, like because that happens and I was like you you get like yeah. sometimes I have that like I'll get a flurry of like I really want to be on the dating app and I'll start chatting with a few people for a day or maybe a couple days and then I like I'm like wait life is caught up with me and I don't really there's nothing really invested in this for anybody yet, and I think that's yeah. a distinction. I think okay that's a really good question. You know what? There's no hard and fast rule. But if you're listening to this and you're thinking about someone and being like, oh, man, I should not have done that. Then, yeah, you ghosted them. Like, you know, when you know, you know. You know, yeah. when, when you know that you've built up expectations in another person to at least a level that, that you feel a bit like, oh, uncomfortable having a conversation to set to break things off. That's the level at which you're ghosting them. Before that, you're just not talking anymore. Above that, you've ghosted. You've just left. So what I'm saying is... The, the online practice of ghosting is not just not messaging someone. The online ghosting practice is like not breaking up with somebody and using the fact that you can just disappear online in lieu of actually having a conversation. Does that, is that yeah. a good clarifier? I think that's a good clarifier. Like, because... ima- imagine in the 1920s when you had to physically turn up at someone's door. There was no ghosting. Well, they could stand someone up. That's yeah, the equivalent. Yeah, yes, exactly. You have, exactly. Where you've oh, made an yeah. expectation of showing up and then you don't. Exactly. Just think about, like, would 1920s me not pay for this carriage ride anymore? Then I should send the telegram. There we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> send a carrier pigeon. <laughs> the third online, like, unethical, slutty thing to do is, I don't, I think the term I found when I was trying to research this was breadcrumbing, but I'm going to explain it because I don't know, I've never used it before. Basically, it's when you carefully craft an online image, Snapchat, like, like, Instagram story, Instagram post. God, if you were really needy. Um, <laughs> uh, Facebook post. You carefully craft it to pop up on someone's feed that, that you're targeting to give them an impression of something. Either like that you are, I don't know, so happy like with this person and but like secretly is so upset. Like you, basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to like cultivate an image specifically targeted at someone, but using mass media to get it there. Hmm. Using your online media to get it there. Instead of just being like, okay, listen, I feel really annoyed about the way that you're treat. This is a good example. Instead of saying to, to your hubby, I feel really annoyed about this and the way that you're treating me. You go onto Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, you go onto a social media presence that you know him and his friends will see. And you create a post, probably using maybe lyrics from a song or using a song about how, like, you built up your man and now he's not respecting you. And I think, does that make sense, that behavior? To me, it sort of sounds like passive-aggressive use of social media to, to mess with people. Right. Now, the reason why I think that's unethical, apart from the fact that it's annoying (laughs) for everyone else... Is because it's very similar to projection that we spoke about in the last episode. You're projecting, it, like, you're not giving that person an opportunity to be them. You're not giving them, like, the, the way that you have when you can sit down or be on the phone and actually have a conversation, raise your concerns and allow the person to respond. You're taking that away from them. And you're using instead manipulation tactics that online media allows, including, like, public humiliation, including, like, Call, call out culture essentially without actually having the conversation with the person and in doing that you are making them not a person you're making them an object in like the the scene of your life 
And that's really unfair on them. That's really unethical thing to do. And it's similar to the root of some of their in-person practices, IRL practices that they have in this chapter, because you are taking away the person's humanity in that. So those were the unethical sluts. Should we give them all names? Give them all names. Yeah, we have the the person, the, the self-esteem fuck, fucker. Self-esteem fucker. <laughs> As in, that's somebody who wants to build self-esteem through fucking. Yep. Okay. Then we have the set collector. Yep. The non-consensual non-monogamist. Mm-hmm. The barrier betrayer. Oh, nice. Need some alliteration in there. Um, oh, the next one's hard. The the promise perpetrator. Promise perpetrator. I was gonna go with the dishonest dicker. Dishonest dicker. <laughs> the revenge fucker. The revenge fucker. And then I added the slut shamer. The drama hunter. The ghost. And the catfish king. And the catfish king. Oh, and bread. The breadcrumbing baker. I don't know. Bread the buffoon. But the bread going Okay. <laughs> this alliteration has gone on too far. <laughs> but that is that that is basically everything that they discuss in this um, in this chapter and it's relatively short, but we managed to still speak for like basically an hour. We really did. Yeah. So uh, what we're gonna do now is we're gonna talk about the vignette found in my version on page 112 and yours page. 110? 910 in the PDF. 910? 100 and, oh, it's either it starts on 109 and ends on 110 of the PDF. So this little snapshot is called Polly Pioneers, A Bouquet of Lovers, and the Zell Ravenheart Family. Um, and for those that don't know, polyamory as a term was actually coined in the 1990s in an essay called A Bouquet of Lovers, which was published in Green Egg, which was uh, an online journal. Uh, which was part of the Church of All Worlds, which is a lot of information, but basically just know that these, these, this family, the Zell Ravenheart family, and this essay was for many, uh, in like in the American context, this is thought of as being like the beginning of the polyamory movement, the beginning of the consensual non-monogamous movement. So, do you want to take it away? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. And so the they they founded this uh, Church of All Worlds as a paganist church. So their, their whole, and they had apparently before, um, even the essay that Claire mentioned, which sort of is the first instance of the word polyamory that, that people generally look back to. Um, they had apparently been pro- practicing polyamory for almost 20 years. Um, and I didn't do research really on what that, that polyamory family structure looked like. Um, I saw a little bit about it and so I was reading about the magazine and sort of the evolution of that. Um, but, I think basically it, it revolves around this dyads um, who were originally called Diane, Diana Moore and Timothy Zell and became Oberon and Morning Glory Zell Ravenheart. Yes. And got married. Um, but they, they definitely had like a polycule going on. I think that they have children from other partners like involved in a multi-partner mm-hmm. household. Um, and this, this was all being done um, obviously in like the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Here in here in America. America. In America. And um so I think that this essay just happens to be sort of their first talking about their polyamory polyamorous lifestyle and that's where the 
term first came in. It was published in this great Green Egg magazine that they had created as part of their pagan church. Um, so for a little bit about that magazine, because I was really curious to see if I could find it online. So We'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes. You, I think the website's actually been taken down. Well, I'll find a version of it. So I, a little bit of research. They, they started this magazine um, in 1968. It was published all the way into the early 2000s when they had to stop publishing due to a lack of funds. Oh, how sad. And then it was reinstated in 2007 as an e-zine, like an, e-zine, like an online magazine. Is it e-zine or e-zine? I've always said e-zine. I've always said e-zine. And then uh, was apparently relaunched. At some point, they started offering like a printed service if you pay for it. Um, but as of this morning, actually, when I tried to get access to it, the website was down. Oh. So it's gone. And it wasn't just about polyamory. So I was curious if there was a lot about it. But I think it just happens to have been the medium where they share this part of their lives with people i think that we sometimes allude to the history of polyamory being initially quite pagan or neo-pagan um and i think this is why because they not only founded this church of all worlds which is a neo-pagan church with multiple deities but they also founded it as like kind of a poly institution um and for basically the whole 90s polyamory was thought of as being a pagan thing which i mean obviously that there are pagans that that are polyamorous but there are also pagans that are monogamous i'm sure um just because you believe in multiple deities or pagan deities doesn't mean that you necessarily put that into the practice in your relational choices but i think now it's interesting to sort of look at this as a starting point and to see how far we've come um because now well on this podcast alone we talk about um alternate relational choices in you know, legal structures, like family care structures that are completely divorced from any kind of religious or neo-pagan symbolism. So it was nice of them to put to put this nod in there because this was this was the start of it, and it's nice to see how far we've come. Yeah, yeah, it is, and not in I mean, in thirty years, forty years. Well, yeah, I mean, they, oh, unfortunately, Morning Glory, Zell Ravenheart died in twenty fourteen, but. Oberon and the remainder of the family still are alive and they, they operate out of California in these two big houses, apparently. I like to think of it as like a big polycule. Yeah. Um, and I think that this will go this will go down in history as like similar to... We spoke about Oneida mm-hmm. a few, few uh, episodes ago. And it's nice to think like what it will look like in the future. Right. If you think of how far that's come in, in basically three decades since that article was mentioned. Or I, mean, I, I was released. born in that in that year so i there has never been a world where i have lived in that didn't have the word polyamory in use which is quite nice to think about that also means that i haven't lived in that world yeah you're a baby (laughs) all right thanks for joining us bye you can find poly pages on instagram at poly pages and if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to polypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books. <laughs>